0: Players, welcome back to Adapt Table, the podcast about adapting things into other things that are then fun things, mostly.
1: We hope we really got to get an intro here. I love this show. Hi, I'm one of your hosts, Brock Wilber. Hi, I'm Matthew Monagle. I will be writing the intro for the next one of these, I feel. (laughs) <laughs> I
0: like when you when uh, it's episode two and you're like, I have a sense of responsibility to to fix what's going on. Here. I do.
1: I'm beholden to you, Brock. Um,
0: uh, so uh, the the idea behind the show, uh, I'm I'm a games critic uh, and film critic. Matt is a film critic and TV critic. We both sort of separately were, had the idea, like, why is it that so many things from our corner of the world get adapted into board games? It seems odd, especially on my side where I'm like, but these were already games. Why are they now? different games, uh, and so we do a monthly show now where we look at how and why these things happen. We play the games, uh, take them for a couple of spins with friends, and then compare stuff and talk about the process of adaptation into board games, which we feel like not many people are chatting about, so we have one episode out already, uh, and it is for the board game adaptation of Fallout, and a thing that we're going to try and do here on the show is to, instead of just being two. Uh, white dudes talking about board games uh, oftentimes try to bring in a third white dude uh, the, we're trying to get the developers of the games uh, here to talk to us about like we, we did our bullshit and our thing where we guessed at stuff and and, and, and please go back and listen to that first episode uh, to pair with this one uh, but today we have a guest with us that, that will actually tell us what we're right about and wrong about and, and, and why those choices were made
1: So if Andrew, you're our guest today. uh, We've got Andrew Fisher from Fantasy Flight. Could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, how you came to work in the industry, and uh, what you do at Fantasy Flight?
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Happy to be here. Um, Yeah. So my name is uh, Andrew Fisher. Uh, I'm the board and card game manager here at Fantasy Flight Games. Um, I've been uh, in the industry for about eight years now. Uh, I actually uh, got my start uh, here at Fantasy Flight Um, Well, I originally was uh, playtesting the board game Chaos in the Old World a really long time ago, kind of volunteer playtesting for the company. Um, I think I impressed some people, and they told me to apply for uh, one of the RPG jobs that opened up here. So uh, uh, I started out in the role-playing game department. I worked on the Warhammer 40K role-playing games, the Star Wars role-playing games, as well as a couple... uh, uh, post-apocalyptic role-playing games, the End of the World series. Um, From there, I became uh, one of our game designers. Uh, I worked on a miniatures game called Rune Wars. Uh, I got to work on our app-integrated game, Mansions of Madness, that uses a companion app. And then most recently, I uh, designed the uh, Fallout board game, which we'll be talking about today.
0: That's awesome, but, but first, can I just thank you for for putting the app in with Mansions? It's one of my favorite board game experiences right now, and it's just so streamlined and cool, and I just enjoy it so much. Thank you for, thank you for doing that and for everything else in your incredible like resume.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we we're really getting a kick out of my team right now. Works on a lot of our app integrated games, so we're we're really enjoying getting to. Uh, experiment with what you can do when you kind of combine both digital and tabletop games together. So
1: So speaking of digital, let's start going through some of the questions we have for you, Andrew. The the big thing about the Fallout franchise, um, and Brock talked about this in our first episode, giving you a little bit of the history of the game, you know, this has meant um, a lot of things to a lot of different people. There's a lot of people out there that love the franchise. When you started this whole process, what was your experience, if any, with the games? Had you played any of the old like top-down stuff? Had you played the the last couple of iterations of this?
2: <laughs> oh yeah, um, that's uh, so. We have uh, a bunch of different designers here, and often when we're trying to decide who works on what project, we try to um, find the person who's going to be the right fit for the project. And uh, I'd played a lot of Fallout, so um, I ended up uh, working on this one. Um, I played Fallout 1 and 2 back when I was uh, much younger. Uh, I think Fallout 1 came out when I was in middle school, um, to age myself slightly there. Um, and um, uh, I've, I, played, I played Fallout 3 more than nearly any other, any other video game. I think the only one I've never played is the Brotherhood of Steel game that kind of came out in the middle there. Um,
0: you're you're good. You're so good. You're so <laughs> you're so fine and good with all your choices and what you're you're doing.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what I heard. But I did uh, do a decent amount of reading about it. Just um, a lot of that um, isn't like part of the canon. Like obviously, Fallout Three and Four kind of ignored a lot of what happened in that game. But I, I was just mostly out of curiosity. Um, checked out some of that when I started on the project, but otherwise I was I've always been a big fan of the series
1: so I'm as a kind of a follow-up to that then when fantasy flight picks a designer for these games what is the process to begin that adaptation you know you have the the aptitude and the interest in the franchise are you sitting down and saying I need to build a set of mechanics or rules to this based on what I know about the world are you saying that like we have some mechanics that we want to play with and we're going to start figuring out ways to make that fit in you know how do you start to match the actual board game experience to this giant, unwieldy, you know, franchise that has so much canon.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we have that challenge with a lot of, uh, we do a lot of licensed games, you know, uh, we work on Star Wars, we work on Game of Thrones, uh, we work on Lord of the Rings, so we have um, a lot of practice at adapting these big, expansive IPs into board games. Um, That being said, uh, all of our designers kind of uh, approach the problem differently. Um, Each person kind of takes their own tact, and with each project it's different. Sometimes we have a great game system that uh, we're like, oh, this would be a perfect fit for this IP or that IP. But as with Fallout, um, uh, we often take um, kind of a theme-first approach. Um, This is what uh, Mark Rosewater at Wizards calls top-down design, which basically means starting with the story and the theme and then trying to create mechanics that fit best with that. And best kind of emulate and abstract the uh, the theme you're trying to go for, and evokes the feelings that you want to evoke from that setting um, or that action that you're taking in that setting. So uh, with Fallout, I took that approach. Um, I kind of sat down, isolated what the key kind of themes of Fallout are. We knew we wanted to emulate the experience of playing the video games, but on your tabletop. And so you know we sat down, put up on a big whiteboard, what we felt like um, those key themes were. We kind of break down all the different systems that make a Fallout game Fallout, isolate each of those systems, kind of modularize and tackle each of those systems one at a time and say, how do we best abstract this kind of subsystem, this feeling from the game in a small board game chunk and then you kind of take it on piece by piece like that. And along the way you have to make- Can I ask what was on that whiteboard? Uh, sorry, what, what, what was that?
0: Oh, uh, can I ask what was on that whiteboard when you guys got started?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, I think when we isolated it down to just key themes, um, uh, some, some of the core themes I, I'm, I'm uh, summarizing here, um, but I um, were freedom, um, uh, kind of the freedom to approach the game in whatever way you wanted to approach it. Um, making meaningful choices that have a meaningful impact on the world, um, a sense of dark humor, um, and a, a sense of danger, um, to kind of abstract largely. Um, now, obviously, there were many kind of smaller things um, off of this, but those were kind of you know you, you kind of set these uh, broader tenets to kind of build off of. Um, yeah.
0: Matt, do you want to ask the next one here?
1: Yeah. So you talked a little bit about kind of the the core elements of the franchise. And you said that talking about freedom, you know, the next question obviously for me is like, how do you take a solo, solitary experience and turn it into something that's a little bit more of a multiplayer game? Because you're talking about, you know, I think you said you played Fallout 3 the most. Brock and I both mentioned we probably have like 100 plus hours on Fallout 3 easily. Like, how do you take that and be like, all right, now we're going to times that by four and we're not going to have it be a 400-hour game?
2: Yeah, that was... It it was probably one of the biggest challenges. I mean, short of, like, small individual systems that came along with the development. um, From, like, a broad, overarching standpoint, that was a big challenge because it's not just the challenge of adapting a single-player video game into a multiplayer board game. We we do that a lot. But Fallout is a special kind of single-player board game in that, like, a lot of people never finish Bethesda games. You know, I don't know what their, their completion <laughs> stat is, but... I, I
1: don't know what you're talking about, Andrew. I've, <laughs> I've definitely, definitely finished Fallout 4.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. And everybody who plays Skyrim finishes Skyrim, right? Um, they don't wander off into the mountains, you know, become the head of an Assassin's Guild and then call it day, Right. Bethesda, Bethesda never changes.
1: <laughs> I sort of feel like if Bethesda ever wanted to make a game that just had no ending, I don't know what percentage of people would actually notice that. <laughs> yeah, they
2: just never been is, is that it.
0: not Fallout 4? I'm I'm it's a genuine question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are like there there'd be like two very angry people that the game didn't have an ending. Um but yeah, so so this problem uh that experience is really um at odds with a tabletop experience because a tabletop experience is a discrete amount of time. You don't want it to take, you know, well, I mean, some of our games can take a while, but, you you know, you want it to have a beginning and an end and be finished. You're playing it with multiple people. You're playing it in just a couple hours. um, And you need to have some kind of driving tension in this experience that you are sharing with people at the table. And so uh, this kind of meandering exploration and, like, playing around with uh, emergent narrative systems that is a Bethesda game uh, is not super conducive to creating tension in a short experience at a table. So um, uh, the single-player to video game to multiplayer board game because of this is is a is a big issue. Um, so we, we we try to uh, we'll probably talk in, in as we talk about the systems a little bit about how we kind of drove that tension. Um, Versus giving players freedom, but the other thing that we had to kind of think of is is how do we Be true to fallout while driving interactivity so that players actually care about what the other players are doing Um, Otherwise you kind of run into this experience of uh, what people in board games will often call multiplayer solitaire which basically means we're all playing our (laughs) own game at the same table, but we don't really care about what other people are doing, we're just trying to do our best job ourselves. And we wanted uh, this to have some amount of player interaction. Um, and then the last big challenge was uh, you know, one of those core tenants we talked about uh, for Fallout is having meaningful, meaningful choices that have a meaningful impact on the wasteland. And so how do you do that when you have four different players and everybody has meaningful impact on the wasteland and what does that mean you're not the one person deciding whether the Brotherhood or the enclave succeeds it's four different people fighting over that choice and so that really changes the dynamic
1: as a follow-up to that um, you know I know that you talk about have this shared space and people having you know being able to play the game the, the way that they want to play it you know fallout the board game was released at the same time where Bethesda was famously working on their first multiplayer PvP addition to the franchise thank, was there,
0: thank you we were both starting the same question yeah was it was time, there ever any I'm so excited we're doing
1: it. any thought into maybe making this a game because brock you know initially in our first episode brock had said when he popped it open he thought it was just going to be a bunch of players a bunch of vault survivors running at each other and shooting each other um was there ever a thought that you were going to try and make this a little bit more heads up competitive
2: oh yeah i mean it we go through a bunch of different iterations um throughout playtesting and throughout our early development. So there were times when this game was fully co-op. There were times when this game was fully competitive. There were a lot of different kind of versions of this game that existed um, tr- throughout uh, its development. But uh, you know, at given stages of the game, you'd play it. It might be like a fun version, but like you kind of go back to those core tenants and you ask yourself is this evoking that, right? When somebody can like, for example, run up to you and just shoot you in the face and keep on moving because you've been supporting the Enclave and they haven't. Um, is that a fun, ex- engaging experience and does that feel like Fallout to you? And so um, for whatever, for one reason or the other, um, when we were fi- when we were faced with that version of the game and that experience, we ended up making the decision to kind of move away from it because it wasn't evoking kind of those core feelings we wanted. And, like, getting back to evoking those core feelings of the solo game. Um, and, in the end, Deathmatch with other players was nowhere in kind of those core tenets that we wanted to uh, stick to. Mm. Uh, I,
0: I'm trying to phrase this in the, the least revenge-y, shitty way possible. Is there something uh, positive for you or, like, a really good feeling of watching... Uh, your multiplayer Fallout experience be so well received versus the multiplayer experience that has recently come out in Fallout 76? Like, is there a feeling of like, wow, we really got something right that maybe even the Fallout people didn't get right? Like you adapted something and did it better than the creators, or at least not the creators, but like who controls the property? I I'm, I'm trying not to be shitty about it, but I'm trying to ask you, like, is is that a cool feeling?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, we had our own challenges, right? As you guys talked about in your last episode, and as I'm sure um, most people can see on BoardGameGeek, we had our own challenges with ways different aspects of our system were received. And, of course, like, I'm a huge Bethesda fan. I love those guys. We went over, we worked closely with them on this game. So, like, I want Fallout 76 to do the best it can. So, you know... It, Obviously, you know, when there's drama with a new game, there's always a part of you that like, you know, gleefully seeks out the drama to talk about it with people and everything. <laughs> but all in all, you know, my, my heart goes out to them as a fellow developer who has faced his own challenges. I, I, I totally understand um, uh, what a rough launch can feel like. So uh, uh, generally, I, I, I support them, and I hope uh, they can get 76 to, to a really good place
1: yeah and that's sort of that's a difference for for you in the industry though right it's like when they create something they get to tweak it over time like i don't think anyone you know i see a lot of people that are like this is going to be fallout 76 is going to be such a good game in like six months or 12 months once they kind of like iron out or, some, or some two of the years stuff. like destiny mm-hmm.
0: one needed in order to get that far like yeah they can I, and and you're talking to two people like no one's here's trying to be shitty either because like I would heard from other friends that had like played early builds of the game, and I still bought like the hundred dollar like set. I was like, at some point, I know I will want this, and it's going to be good then. Uh, so, yeah, sorry we we can we can leave seventy six behind and get back to to what we <laughs> sure. were talking about. Um, there's in in terms of your adaptation though, like we're we're talking about how exciting it is that you adapted it into a multiplayer thing and did so well, but also. I'm I'm a little newer to board games and stuff, but I've never had such a fun single-player board game experience. Like, how do you tweak that, and how did this get? How did you get that to that point? Was that was that actually the first thing that you guys did, or was that the second thing, or or how did how did that process go?
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, so the single-player game, um, because you know, I previously mentioned that we were trying to drive kind of interactivity and like how these choices worked together with a multiplayer thing. Um, we took on the multiplayer first um, and we designed most of the game with multiplayer in mind, Um, you know, kind of two to four players, um, you know, is is what we were kind of designing for early. And then as we got to something that started to feel right, you know, in our iterative process, that's when we kind of stopped and took a look and said, okay, so how, you know, Fallout is a solitary experience. How do we adapt this? to also allow you to play it by yourself. And so um, the, the solo play actually kind of came in in maybe like the second half of development. Um, generally, solo play is a bit easier to test and iterate simply because it ha- requires fewer testers. You can test it yourself, or you can grab one person and just watch them play. And so um, uh, you don't have to like get a whole group together and have them spend hours playing and giving feedback. So, that solo play is a little faster to sit there and iterate with uh, other developers.
0: But Before we leave that question, I just got to ask you how, how many nights alone did you spend sitting with the thing that you had created your, your, your own Frankenstein and just having to sit and, and replay and, and, and look for stuff.
2: Oh, you know, a a lot. And of course, every (laughs) version you play is, uh, uh, bad in some way i mean like obviously they're all good in some way as well but like you know i played lots of bad versions of this game you know like as as you try to kind of find everything that's not working and figure out ways to fix it and make these systems all work together and play nicely together at a certain point, were,
0: were you like remembering or forgetting like the different new rules each night? Like as somebody that's done like bug testing before, I know you're like, oh, I, I forgot that this one's slightly different than that thing. And like it that that makes it even harder because you're like, I'm not even playing the right version of this bad game. Oh,
2: yeah. Like you're like, all right, which version is that? Oh, no. Is, is this component <laughs> old? I actually when, when we do our iterative <laughs> process, I put a little version watermark on every single component I ever print so that I can very quickly say, oh, crap, I'm playing with, you know, this is version 6 when I'm actually supposed to be playing on version 8. That's why this subsystem is screwing up. Because when there's, you know, fantasy flight games are infamous for having lots of components. And so when you're all trying to keep that straight as a developer by yourself, it can be a lot to kind of keep track of at once.
1: So Andrew, you were talking about playtesting and my impression, sort of as an outsider from the industry, is that I think it feels like board game fans are more understanding and more open about playtesting, sort of as a function of there being a lot of independent board game developers that are traveling to different expos and stuff and letting people try their game and working through them communally. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, for people that that have playtested a game? What are some of the things that jumped out at Fallout, the, you know, the weird or unexpected things or those aha moments that came out when you had people playing it and they said, hey, I, I broke this. And you're like, oh, I never even thought that could happen.
2: <laughs> I, I was trying to uh, think of the weirdest possible one. I, I don't know if I have like a really good weird anecdote that came out of testing. One of the things that jumped out really early is something uh, we tried to do with Fallout is um, kind of take... A lot of the complexity that can be present in these board games that you need to kind of create all of the systems to mimic these really sophisticated single-player games and kind of um, hide it from the player's main interface Uh, what i mean by that is um, you'll see a lot of decisions you make a lot of the ways you do things like shopping or exploration or uh, getting different um, uh, conditions and such uh, all come all come out of the encounter decks and so um and you know, how the encounter decks, pull cards from the archive, um, or the, the, from the card library and, and put them into play as quests or shuffle them into other decks. All of that is kind of hidden within these decks and in just instructions that players need to worry about one card at a time. Um, so this is nice because it means that players have a pretty simple interface in the different actions they can perform. But those actions feel very like they're doing a lot of sophisticated things because these cards are doing all sorts of sophisticated things. But the big issue we ran into is an issue of transparency, because players expect to and want to be able to do all these sophisticated things, and they're hidden away in decks. They're not, like, readily apparent to the player, like, oh, you know, for example, something as simple as how do I go shopping? There's not a shop action, right? You have to go and have an encounter at a settlement until you're able to shop. And so um, a lot of these different things that players, especially Fallout fans, wanted to be able to do are kind of hidden within these decks and trying to get people to uh, know where to go to find all of the different parts of the system um, was definitely one of the challenges in alpha testing. We worked on iconography in other ways. There was a version of the game where all the encounter decks just had a list of things you might be able to do at a a space like this on the backs of cards, just so you could say, I want to shop, oh, I'll need that deck or whatever. Um, so that was one of the bigger challenges during testing, um, the, I think the other big thing that came up was just, um, how we gave players incentives, Mm -hmm. um, because there's all sorts of different actions, you know, you can explore, you can fight monsters, you can complete quests, you can have encounters, um, you can trade with players, all these different things. And, um, you know, we, we try to kind of scale incentives for all these different things you can do. And make sure that they all feel rewarding to you, and you know what types of incentives you get from different things. And as soon as one is out of whack, in a competitive environment, you get really weird behaviors. Um, which, uh, you know, some of them it, it, you have to kind of make a judgment of whether or not these behaviors are thematic to the game or not. But for example, early on, uh, whenever you explored tiles, well, at first you you just spent movement near the edge of a tile and it explored the next one, and um, You would get experience for exploring tiles, and every game without fail, there would be one player who decided, you know what, my goal is to explore every single tile and get all the XP for doing this. And so this player (laughs) just spent the entire game just running, like, zigzagging across the board to explore every single tile, which is cool, but this player ends up spending almost an hour of time doing nothing but, like... uh, being a Roomba, right? <laughs> I must flip up every tile. And so that player didn't actually have that fun of a time. And so like, that was a, a lot of testing is kind of like identifying those incentives that are making players maybe not experience the parts of the game you want them to and kind of fixing those, which is why exploration really is, isn't incentivized heavily in the game because it, it is already good in its own right. Every, all the other systems encourage you to want to explore.
1: Yeah, and it feels like this the, is, the balance on that was good, uh, though, because, you know, I think the meta game that I ended up playing with my friends was, can I complete the encounters that you've put in the deck? Not because it's going to give me any kind of endgame reward, but just to piss you off a little bit. So <laughs> it was definitely a fun experience of trying to be like, oh, that's cool. You added two cards. I'm going to get them before you do. But I know that that won't, like, break the gameplay for us.
2: Yeah.
0: How is it that you, uh, I mean, this is something that you and very few other people in the world who have, you know, made board games out of video games have to be up against how do you make something that appeals to people in both those worlds uh because especially as more of a newer board game person but somebody that sunk hundreds of hours into fallout i loved this but also i understood i would have understood if what i got out of there was some euro style board game that like had nothing for me and just had the ip name on it and it was a Just a translation of the IP, but for a totally different crowd, that would have made sense. Uh, How do you, how do you make sure those Venn diagrams for fun overlap?
2: Kind of between the board game community and between like Fallout fans Uh, and and video gamers. And just yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, It's it it can often be a tricky balance. Um, Generally. Personally, I um, try to stay true to the IP first, and I, I think that's true of a, a lot of our games here at Fantasy Flight. Um, because in the end, you know, the board game market is uh, it is more vibrant than it has ever been with Kickstarter and everything. There are so many games out there. Um, if you're looking for like a, a board game that kind of scratches a specific mechanical itch. There's going to be a game out there for you. The reason people come to these licensed games is because they love our, or they love the IP that we're licensing. You know, from Bethesda, from Lucasfilm, whoever we're working with. Um, so we, our, our first priority is being kind of true to those IPs. So generally, uh, that's the angle we kind of focus on. Um, my goal was to be, like, to to make the most uh, authentic Fallout experience I could. Um, and uh, so, and generally when we approach these things to, uh, we don't want to isolate board game players. We don't want to say, you know, this isn't for you. Um, so we try to let the, the thing stand on its own and exist on its own. Anyone can play Fallout like you guys talked about in your last episode um, with your dad playing. Um, he could play the game. It, it, his not knowing Fallout didn't stand in the way of him, like, necessarily understanding the systems but like you know he the game isn't actively sitting there to teach him the ip it's not saying hey new you know somebody who's new to fallout here let me teach you all about the interesting retro future post apocalypse thing and instead it, it just like tries to be as true to that ip as possible so if he's not into fallout he might not be into the game but he can certainly still play it right
1: yeah it's he yeah Short of having him go back and play several hundred hours of that game, I don't think there was another way to, to get him to care about the, the license as much. Um, but you make know, Matt's dad do New <laughs> Vegas. That's the whole thrust of this show. There we go. Oh no, we'll have him do Brotherhood of Steel, and then he'll wonder why I ever had him play the board oh game. Oh my together. god! All don't right, do it. Andrew. Last question for you then. Um, yeah. And you had you had thirty minutes of warning, so hopefully hopefully you're ready to talk about this. Um, you know, you work a lot with a lot of really great licenses and a lot of IPs. You know, if you could, legal and financial ramifications set aside, adapt one of your own favorite video game or movie or television franchises or or properties as a board game, what would it be and why?
2: Yeah, so I I had a bunch of warning and I don't uh, have like my perfect answer picked out. uh, Distracting me with all sorts of other questions. Um, So so for a long time, uh, obviously it would be like I would love to work on Star Wars, but I got to... And, you know, I still uh, really enjoy working on Star Wars when I get a chance to. But um, uh, so there is a board game for this already. So it's not really that I want one to exist, but I would love to be able to work on uh, uh, The Expanse. Um, it's mm. a, the, There's the sci-fi show um, and uh, um, the book series. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit deep nerd stuff, but, like, I... Uh, I really kind of got into that show and how it kind of does this, like, near future um, sci-fi setting. Um, so so I, I, I really got a kick out of that one.
1: Oh, I've seen the first season of that show. That, that feels like a Euro game to me. There are a lot of fiddly little pieces that you would yeah, need to it. have in that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: All right, Andrew. Uh, we... We've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for coming to do this and talking to us.
1: Is there, uh, for f- fans that want to see what the kind of content you might be sharing on your own, any insights you might have into the board game industry, is there a good social media account they can follow you on?
2: Yeah, definitely. They can uh, check out my Twitter. I'm uh, at ethereal underscore fish uh, on Twitter. I, I, I post somewhat regularly.
1: <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, Brock, how do they follow you? Just in case they don't remember.
0: I'm at Brock Wilbur. Everywhere doing those things, come check out my other podcasts. and Say hi. Matt, where can people find you?
1: <laughs> people can find me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. And I do want to echo what Brad said. The man was smart. He got the same handle on every single platform. So you'll be able to find him at Brock Wilbur, regardless of what you're using.
0: Oh, I thought you said, uh, I'd like to echo what Brad said. No. I was like, (laughs) well, clearly me having the handles isn't working out, bud. That's not the best version of this. I am bad SEO Uh, personified. You're all right. Uh, Well, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. Please rate, review, tell a friend. Thank you guys so much for listening.